when they ran a study of people awarding hypothetical scholarships to recipients, uh, they would award them more consistently to people whose politics they agreed with, uh, even in the face of objective qualifications or GPA or whatever it was. Um, and uh, apparently most people are fine with that. Mm -hmm. That's right, because we are fine-tuned to be sensitive to discrimination based on race, gender, and other categories. But we were never taught that discriminating based on politics was some horrible taboo. Political party has become a signifier, not just of what you believe in terms of policies, but who you are, what your values are, what you think about you know, abortion and war and everything else. You know, to have a good society, we have to have well-functioning institutions. And a, good, a, a liberal society, not liberal like left, but like, you know, the traditional notion of a liberal society is one in which there is excellence in different institutions and then people can live lives that they want to live and there's support from these different institutions. And now that we're so polarized, uh, we don't trust the other side to run anything. All right, welcome back to Yang Speaks. This is Zach Grauman, one of your co-hosts. Thank you for joining. We have a fascinating conversation to introduce for you today. Jonathan Haidt joins Yang Speaks. And what he talks about with Andrew is something everybody needs to hear. He has something called the Moral Foundations, um, which are the basically six principles that everybody values to various different scales. And it's a fascinating way to look at why you lean right or left. So they break this down in depth for a bit. And they talk about human-centered capitalism and the political divide and how to use this Moral Foundations framework to help people, frankly, start talking to each other. So you don't want to miss it. Jonathan Haidt on Yang Speaks. It is a thrill and a privilege to welcome to Yang Speaks an intellectual hero of mine, social psychologist, modern day philosopher, NYU professor, Jonathan Haidt. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, Andrew. It's a thrill to be talking with you. Well, I, I'm going to prove my fandom right now uh, to everyone by showing people copies of your books. And there, there are other books that I, I'm not holding in my hands right now, <laughs> but uh, the Righteous Mind and Coddling of the American Mind, such important works. Uh, and I want to hear about what you've been doing since uh, your, your last book. Um, but I, I have to say that when people ask me why things aren't working in the country, why Democrats couldn't win seats uh, in November, um, there are a few books I push them to. And one of them is The Righteous Mind. Uh, I have to say this book is so enlightening in terms of why good moral people uh, are divided by uh, politics uh, and religion, though I, I talk about politics more than religion myself. But they're kind of the same thing nowadays. There is a lot of overlap. Uh, so you came to this work, I thought, in a really interesting way, and like your arc gets sketched out in The Righteous Mind. Um, but how did you come to be um, someone who studies morality for a living? So I applied to graduate schools, and I only got into one at the University of Pennsylvania. And I was originally going to study um, cognitive psychology and the psychology of humor. I was going to 
figure out why we found things funny. Um, but that I was a real to... missed opportunity, John. You instead of talking to me, you could be talking to some comedian right now. <laughs> yeah. no, that's actually it's funny. a lot of comedians are doing politics shows nowadays, so I, I, I get to get to do they're, that. They're, anyway. Actually, they, if there's a Venn diagram. They are touching. It's true. Yeah. Um, you, if you actually maybe there's a third circle to this, which is academics. There would be like comedians, politicians, and then academics over yep, here. That's where I want to be. Um, so I happened to have a really good conversation with a professor at Penn who was studying thinking and decision-making, and he had a side interest in moral thinking, and I had done my senior essay in college on free will and determinism. So I, I just began studying uh, morality. I thought it was really interesting, and I began looking at it across cultures. I worked with a wonderful anthropologist named Alan Fisk, and in reading ethnographies and reading stories of, you know, uh, anthropologists go to a culture, they live there for a few years and they write about, you know, marriage or music or food or something. Uh, it became really clear that there's a lot of similarities in, you know, morality is so different in different cultures, but you've got these weird similarities around like menstrual taboos or food taboos. Uh, everybody has reciprocity and vengeance. And so I was thinking like, okay, how do you reconcile these differences and these similarities. And so that's what I did for the first, you know, about five, uh, 10 years of my career was I looked at morality across nations, across cultures. But I was, I was a, uh, you know, I'm, I was a Democrat, I am still a Democrat. Um, and I watched as, you know, as the Democrats lost in 2000 and 2004, and I just couldn't stand it anymore. And I wanted to have my research uh, be helpful. We'll come to that later as to whether it's good for professors to be involved in politics. But, <laughs> but, um, uh, but it began by 2004, it was really clear, left and right in America were like different countries with different cultures, different moralities, different economics textbooks, different climate science textbooks, different US constitution. Like we were, re you know, tools of anthropology could now be applied to America. Like why, why are we coming apart? So I began, um, I began writing memos t to the Democrats about how to use moral psychology to win more elections. And I didn't really know any politicians. So like nobody ever read them. I would send them to people, nobody ever read them. Um, but as the Democrats continued to lose, I continued to, you know, to, to write and to study this. Um, and I decided then to turn it into a book. Uh, uh, and then a funny thing happened. So two things happened. One is Obama won. And now I was not quite as, you know, as passionate, but it was like when George W. Bush was in the White House, it was like, we like, you know, a lot of Democrats had Bush derangement syndrome, it was said. And once Obama got in, then, you know, sort of the anger lifted. Well, but, but I feel like Bush derangement uh, syndrome would be like a light cold uh, compared to Trump derangement <laughs> syndrome. Yeah. Well, that's right. Well, but it, yeah, similarly, yeah, George W. Bush would be a cold virus. And uh, I think Trump would be the coronavirus. So um, the, the overreaction, it's not an overreaction necessarily. Um, but I started writing the book. And originally my goal was to help the left. But I committed myself to understanding all views. And I subscribed to National Review and I watched Fox News. And, and you know, there's a lot of bad stuff you can say about Fox News, but exposing yourself to what conservatives think or, you know, the, to what other people think about an issue that you care about, you, you, you learn a lot more. You see things you didn't see before. And I came to see that, that conservatives, especially sort of Berkey and like Edmund Burke conservatives, We'll get into that later about what, what, what the hell is going on with the right now. There, a lot of it is not conservative, but true conservatives, intellectual conservatives, I thought actually made a lot of sense about what it takes to have a stable and decent society. And so by the time I got halfway through the book, I decided, no, this isn't to help the Democrats win. This is to help all of us understand each other because we are really messed up by our moral psychology.
So when you did those 10 years in other environments, uh, like what countries or societies did you interact with? Uh, it sounds like you were something of like a world vagabond uh, during your studies. Is that accurate? Yes, I've always loved to travel. And that's actually a feature generally of the left, you know, psychologically. Left and, <laughs> no, psycho, you know, left and right are different no, psychologically. No, it's I, like, yeah. International, yeah, it, it's, love uh, to travel, globetrotting, co rootless, rootless cosmopolitans. Yeah. Yes. That's it. Appetite for novelty corresponds to uh, liberalism. So right. if you really like new cuisines, uh, exposure to different art forms, uh, travel, then you are more likely to be liberal or progressive. That's correct. And then uh, this, is your, this is a research by Sam Gosling. Uh, if you have a calendar or postage stamps uh, at your desk, you're more likely to be a Republican. Repub uh, uh, people on the right are more conscientious, more organized. People on the left are, are less conscientious, less organized. Um, if the meeting starts on time, it's probably a right-wing meeting. If it's late, it's probably a left-wing meeting. So there's all kinds of interesting research on that. Wow. That, that, that's why I guess they talk about college time, like everyone shows up late. <laughs> yeah, we could, we could see whether uh, it's different. At the, there are a couple of conservative universities. We could see if I bet classes start on time there. Um, but I did my uh, dissertation research in Brazil because I spoke Spanish. And I was hoping to find a collaborator in a Spanish-speaking country at a conference in Argentina. But um, but uh, people in the Spanish-speaking countries were mostly doing psychoanalytic Marxist stuff, and I found a great collaborator in Brazil, and um, she you know she did the research there. So anyway, I, I did my original research in Brazil, and then I worked with a, an amazing anthropologist, Richard Schwader, uh, who had connections in India. So then I went to Bhubaneswar, India, which is the capital of, of the state of Orissa, um, and that really blew my mind. That's where I really first began to. I, I think, understand a conservative mindset. I hated conservatives before then, and so I wouldn't be nice to American conservatives. But in India, it's you know it was a traditional society, hierarchical, sex-segregated, religious, and they were very nice to me, and I liked them, and that opened my heart, and I could understand at least some of the things that conservatives value. Uh, so that, for me, was like the matrix moment, like the red pill moment when I stepped out of my you know, left-wing American moral matrix and began to look at it from the outside more as a social scientist. So Brazil, India, th those would be very, very different experiences. So you come back uh, and your work evolves where instead of how can the left uh, more effectively campaign, it became how do we understand each other better This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private 
internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. One of the most fascinating aspects of your book was identifying different moral values that transcend nationality or society, that there are things that just human beings are uh, wired for. And, and you mentioned one of them, which is reciprocity, which is if someone uh, does something nice for you, then we're wired to be nice to them. And you can see that, uh, you know, you and I are parents, so you can see that with infants where if like, you smile, they're likely to smile back. That's <laughs> kind of like like most of the... Uh, the interaction you have. Uh, and so you're identifying these six universal moral values I thought was so important. Uh, and those moral values you identified were uh, caring, fairness, um, sanctity, loyalty, authority, and then you also identified liberty. Uh, and if you look at these values uh, liberals and progressives tend to operate more on the caring and fairness dimensions, and conservatives tend to operate more along the lines of uh, sanctity, loyalty, and authority. Right. Uh, social with liberty being interpreted. Yeah. Social conservatives. That's right. Yeah. Uh, with with liberty being interpreted and valued slightly differently uh, by each side. That's right. So you know, I I love metaphors, and the human mind is a pattern matcher. We think in metaphors. So if you have a good metaphor, it makes it easy to understand something. So the metaphor that I think is best here is, you know, our our, our we all have the same tongues more or less, and our tongue. You know, if you're a human being, your tongue has five taste receptors for sweet, sour, salt, bitter, and umami, which is kind of a meat flavor. Because uh, we evolved, uh, our ancestors ate meat and fruit, and so those guide us to the right things. So we all have the same taste receptors, but depending on what culture you grow up in, you have a different cuisine. And maybe you know, it, uh, and like I thought, America had a lot of you know, a lot of sweetness, but then I went to Chile, and Chile they consume more sugar than anyone on earth, and like everything, everything is so sickly sweet in Chile. But that's what they're used to. Um, and other cuisines are spicier and have you know. Or, um, so anyway, the point is, we have an evolved nature that guides us to things that were good for our ancestors, and we have cultural nature that grew up historically based on local circumstances. And it's the same thing with morality. So care is the easiest one to understand because we're mammals. And what it means to be a mammal is that you nurture your young for a long time. You have huge parental investment. And for most mammals, it's only the female that makes the investment. But in humans and a, and a few other species, males fall in love with their kids and make, make the investment too. So we all have tremendous sensitivity to suffering. And we see, you know, like that famous photo of a, of a, of a two-year-old a two washed up on the beach in, in Southern Europe that was you know, so powerful for, during the uh, immigration uh, issue in, in Europe. Um, we all are wired to respond. Now, conservatives love their children and and 
and have sympathy for suffering. But conservative morality is not based primarily on that. Whereas left-wing morality, especially modern Western left-wing, is based much more on compassion, care. Um, there, how you think society should be ordered is based on that foundation. Conservatives have that foundation, but their morality is not heavily based on it. Fairness, second one. Uh, as you said, reciprocity. Our, our ancestors are revolved to trade. We, we trade not just things, we trade insults, we trade um, uh, favors. So reciprocity is very deep in us. And if you do something for someone and they don't reciprocate, we, we hold on to that, we resent that. We have a strong sense of people who take more than they give. Uh, but in some cultures, uh, you you have such a rigid such attention to direct fairness that if that if somebody you know insults somebody in your family you now have to insult someone in theirs or it quickly escalates to a feud and you you know violence and in other subcultures it's turn the other cheek or just brush it off um, so we all have the same moral foundations but different cultures construct them differently and as you said the social conservatives in the United States. Um, uh, they 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 do you know they rely on uh, care to some extent. Fairness for them is proportionality. If you do the crime, you do the time. Whereas fairness on the left is more about equality, and nowadays especially quality of outcome. And if you have disparities, if you have one group is doing better than another, that looks on the surface to be unfair because it's unequal. So we all talk about fairness, but we mean something different. Uh, and then liberty uh, is kind of similar on the left and the right, except that on the left, uh, people see corporations and rich people as the oppressors, as the ones that need to be overthrown, historically going all the way back to Marx. Whereas on the right, uh, the American right, it's government. There's a real suspicion, you know, government is, is the bully and, you know, we have to arm ourselves and Second Amendment and all that. Um, so those three foundations are, are, are used by both sides, but they mean something different. And then loyalty, authority, and sanctity, those three are heavily used by social conservatives and they are largely rejected by, by the modern left because those, seem, those are the, the, the psychological foundations of tribalism, of group loyalty. Um, uh, if you, you know, fascist, country, fascist morality is very heavily based on group loyalty, authority to the, the, the strong man, and a sense of sanctity or purity about the motherland, things like that. Um, so any culture war in America, you know, like flag, you know, the American flag, the, you know, it's uh, if you're on the left, well, it, burning the American flag is a kind of free speech. But if you're on the right, the flag is sacred. It's not just a piece of cloth. So, um, so what I found from reading ethnographies and looking at evolution was morality varies, but the sort of the deep psychological structures of it are universal. And once you understand that, now the way is open. If you're a Democrat and you want to appeal to, to uh, moderates and conservatives, don't frame it in terms of you know, oppression or suffering. Frame it in terms of you know, the, the, you know, the great American promise or what's great about America or um, uh, you know, American traditions or so, you know, something like that. You can, you can, you can couch almost any appeal uh, in, you can ground it in foundations that your listener responds to. I had this experience countless times on the trail. I thought of you sometimes, uh, John, you should know. So uh, I'll give you one example. I am for universal health care. I think it makes perfect sense. It makes no sense not to have uh, universal health care, particularly in this context. It makes zero sense to tie it to jobs, uh, given that the majority of jobs now are tempered gig or contract jobs and you don't get benefits a lot of the time. 
Uh, but when people ask me about universal health care, the way a lot of folks frame it is in uh, it's a human right and there is this uh, caring argument, which I agree with 100%. I mean, it's inhumane and, and um, uh, savage and barbaric that we have people that don't have health care. But the way I would frame it often, and I totally believe this too, so it wasn't a stretch for me, was look, imagine all of the Americans who never started a small business, never changed jobs, never made some kind of um, independent venture happen because they were stuck in a job that had health care and they knew that they would lose their health care if they lost it. That if you're pro-entrepreneurship, pro-business creation, pro-risk-taking, you should be for universal health care too because this is just awful for any form of economic dynamism. Uh, and I completely like, believe that. I mean, it's true. I've run a business and like that there, you know, like this healthcare system does keep people fixed in place in ways that's, that's not um, very positive. Uh, but that's an argument that would work on like a different set of Americans than, than, exactly. than that's right. the caring and fairness argument. That's right. Because the right, so Ronald Reagan gave us the modern, well, Ronald Reagan created the coalition of, um, uh, of social conservatives um, uh, and business conservatives or, or laissez-faire ca capitalists who are not conservative in any way. They're uh, uh, you know, pro pro business, but they're not social. They're very different from social conservatives. Um, and the third group is authoritarians, uh, people who are prone to racism when triggered by the sense that that our our moral order is coming apart. So the psychologically, there's three very different groups: social conservatives, um, uh, libertarians, or laissez-faire conservatives or capitalists, uh, and authoritarians. So he, he united those three into a very powerful coalition. And the authoritarians uh, were never in the driver's seat. They're less educated. They're more racist. Uh, they were never in the driver's seat. And that's what's unique about our era is that the social, the true social conservatives who I have a lot of respect for, um, a lot of them are anti-Trump. A lot of them were, you know, are, are were sort of kicked out of the club. Uh, so the never Trumpers, a lot of those are, are Burkean conservatives. Um, and the authoritarians for the first time have at least the president's ear, uh, they they are much more influential in the modern right coalition, so it's kind of a mess now. And you know, I have you know in the book you you can tell I think that I have a lot of respect for conservatives and libertarians, but as as well as the, as well as the left. But um, but the but in the last four years, the Republican Party I think has kind of lost its mind because that Reagan coalition is is really changing, and it's not conservative in any way that I can recognize. Oh, yeah, genuine conservatives looking up being like, wait a minute, like, why do we like, why do we side off on things yeah. that are, are going to um, expand the deficit when we're supposed to care about the deficit, which, by the way, I think caring about the deficit in an historic pandemic is like uh, the wrong thing to do. I mean, you know, the house yeah. is on fire. You got to put the fire out. Um, but they're like traditional conservative values. The Republican Party is completely abandoned. And I thought that the the biggest example of it was when they refused to even write down a platform for their convention because they were afraid that Trump was just going to go against it at any moment. So they said, you know what, let's let's just leave the platform blank. <laughs> the platform was essentially whatever Trump's saying today, that's going to be our platform. Like it was a complete abandonment uh, of any kind of consistent principle. No, that's right. And that reflects something that I think Ezra Klein has really called attention to in his book, Why We're Polarized. Um, and, you know, it, he's drawing on political scientists in this. Um, but it's that in recent years, 
uh, our politics has really shifted away from being about issues and being almost entirely about identity. And so uh, people aren't going to vote based on what the platform is. It's, you know, is your identity, uh, you know, are, is it, you know, are you, uh, by, by race or gender or sexual orientation? Is that part of your identity? Is your identity, I'm a real American and they're not real Americans. So, uh, you know, Trump capitalized on, on that. Um, and uh, you know it's it's transforming the right because as you say they, these issues that they that seem so near and dear to them and to the extent that many were very principled those have all have been thrown out the window. Um, one of the most important values is respect for process. The so you know traditional conservatives they seem you know might seem a little uptight or rigid but you know like here's the process this is what you know this is what gets done uh, and you know now what we're seeing with this challenge you know Trump's challenge to uh, you know, to, to the election. I mean, the, you know, sure, make appeals. He did that. And they went through the process and they were rejected. But, um, but and the fact that so many Republican congressmen and senators are joining him in basically, you know, having no respect for the process, rejecting the process, all they care about is the outcome. Uh, or I guess we should say in the case of the senators and, and, um, and congressmen, they're the media ecosystem in the Republican Party is such that they're afraid of getting primaried. They're afraid of, of being a target of the president. So I don't know how many of them really believe that the election was stolen. I have no way to, to know that. But man, it's it's a mess of a party and it sure ain't conservative. Yeah, it's very dark. You have people arguing uh, count the vote and stop the vote in different places, just depending upon what, what they think is going to help their team, which is like a Veep parody. <laughs> and, and it's in... Uh, it, it's in real life. Why We're Polarized by Ezra Klein joins the righteous mind in, uh, to me, explaining why things are so bleak uh, uh, for us. I mean, it, literally, the book's called Why We're Polarized, so it explains why we're polarized. But one of the, the things he said that I think most people would find shocking is that there is a very low correlation between one's policy viewpoints uh, and one's self-identification as conservative or liberal uh, that if there was a perfect correlation, which is I say I'm conservative and then all my policies line up as conservative, it would be like a, a one correlation on a scale of zero to one, which would be perfect. Now, you wouldn't expect anything to be perfect, but the correlation that Ezra found in studies was 0.25, which yeah, is which really is, low. Right, very <laughs> like variance, that's, yeah. That, yeah. that's very, very low. And he explained it in a way that made sense to me. He said, look, the fact is most Americans... Uh, don't think in white papers. They haven't really thought about a lot of these policies in depth. Um, they just know what team they're on. They know what tribe they're a part of. Uh, and the communications they're getting at this point are very much about activating what team you're on um, as opposed to uh, nuanced policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Because the uh, political parties... Um, didn't used to be perfectly sorted by left-right. There used to be conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. Uh, there was overlap in values. Um, but beginning, you know, some historians and political scientists say beginning with Johnson signing the Civil Rights Act, and he said to Bill Moyers uh, right afterwards, I've just signed over the, the South to the Republican Party for the rest of my life and yours. Um, so that shifted Southern conservative Democrats over to being Southern conservative Republicans. Uh, and, you know, so the, the, and the Republican Party kind of radicalizes first. You get Fox News in the 90s. So for a lot of reasons, the Republicans purify and, and radicalize in the 90s, uh, by the 90s. 
Um, and the Democrats uh, uh, are, are still more diverse at the time, or spread out at the time. But I think social media has had a, quite an effect on the Democrats. So the Democrats recently have moved, especially white Democrats, have moved much further to the left on a, on a bunch of issues. So uh, we have purified parties. We have a, a social media ecosystem that can kind of enforce, uh, you know, can punish people who stray. And so for a lot of reasons, and, and Ezra's book does a great job of really covering the, the territory of research, for a lot of reasons, polarization has been rising steadily since the 80s and especially since the year 2000. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right? And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Ezra says a lot of things that I think are really important. But one thing he said was that discrimination against someone based upon their political ideology is like the last acceptable form oh, yeah. of discrimination <laughs> for, yes. for, like, for, for millions of Americans. Uh, and it, it's so extreme that when they ran a study of people awarding hypothetical scholarships to recipients, uh, they would award them more consistently to people whose politics they agreed with. Uh, even in the face of objective qualifications or GPA or whatever it was. Um, and uh, apparently most people are fine with that. Mm -hmm. That's right, because we are fine-tuned to be sensitive to discrimination based on race, gender, and other categories. But we were never taught that discriminating based on politics was some horrible taboo. And as political party has become a signifier, not just of what you believe in terms of policies, but who you are, what your values are, what you think about you know, abortion and war and everything else, um, of course you can discriminate against people who are evil. Of course you should treat them differently. Um, there was a, I gave a talk in 2011 about how my field, social psychology, was purifying politically. You know, academics have, have leaned left for more than 100 years, um, and psychologists have always leaned left, but there were conservative psychologists. And by 2011, I, I, I did a search for a conservative social psychologist. I was only able to find one. I gave a talk on that. And uh, afterwards, some social psychologists wanted to see whether I was exaggerating or... Um, and they surveyed uh, about five or six hundred people in the in the field. And one of the things they did was they asked if you know if somebody was applying for a job and you found out that they were conservative or liberal, would that you know would you be less likely to to award it? Or if if you were awarding um, uh, grants or you know all sorts of other things. 
And the, the majority of people in my field said that they would, at least to some extent, discriminate against conservatives. And about 40% said that they would do so to a substantial degree. Because it's fine. That's not discrimination. That's just like good judgment. Uh, and so- <laughs> That's you know, rough. Yeah. And of, yeah, and of course, the, and, you know, and most of the research shows these biases are generally pretty symmetrical. So you know, the right does it, does it to the left. Uh, but yeah, it's a mess because you know, to have a good society, we have to have well-functioning institutions. And a, good, a, a liberal society, not liberal like left, but like, you know, the traditional notion of a liberal society is one in which there is excellence in different institutions and then people can live lives that they want to live and there's support from these different institutions. And now that we're so polarized, uh, we don't trust the other side to run anything and we don't respect institutions. So police has always leaned right. The academy has always leaned left. So, you know, on the left, they don't trust the police. On the right, they don't trust professors. Um, so, it, yeah, it's making it hard to have a good society. And, and this is a time when we really need to get our institutions working if we're going to have everybody rising, if we're going to have a more inclusive form of capitalism. I'd I hope we can talk about that, uh, human-centered capitalism. I mean, I'd be thrilled to. I'd be thrilled to talk about human-centered capitalism. Uh, so one okay. of the findings in your book that blew my mind, and then Ezra presented it uh, in a, a similar way, was that there are these psychological underpinnings that are associated with uh, our political inclinations. And so you and I referenced earlier appetite for novelty. If you like new stuff, you're more likely to be liberal or, or progressive. Uh, other qualities, there's a psychological quality of openness that like if you're more open, uh, and this, this, this sounds like it's all sort of like good for uh, progressives and liberals. I mean, you talked about conscientiousness corresponding to conservatism, mm -hmm. and, and yeah. that has many, many positive right. uh, characteristics uh, where uh, generally people think of being conscientious as a very good thing. Mm -hmm. um, that There is another one around threat sensitivity, where if you are more mindful of uh, dangers, then you're more likely to be conservative. And there are times where that could be exactly what you want, like depending upon the, the, the context. Uh, there's another one around disgust reflex, mm -hmm. which is if I show you something um, kind of gross, like do you uh, like, you know, react adversely or, or, or do you shrug? Uh, and there are times when you can say, well, you know, you probably should be very concerned about something um, that's unclean if, for example, you're like looking for, you know, stuff to eat in a particular environment or, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, but the the most compelling thing, and this is as a parent, I've got uh, two children. You've got, is it uh, two, two children, children yeah. as well? Mm -hmm. Two children, yeah. So if you're a parent, you know that your kids are different from each other <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> in a way that has nothing to do with anything you did. Right. You know, I've, I've, I've got two boys and they're pretty distinct. Uh, and it, it turns out that these psychological qualities correspond to... Um, someone's nature when they're born and that these things can lead someone to certain political leanings. Uh, and so this strikes me as really fundamental where, wait a minute, if your nature actually drives you towards conservatism or liberalism, um, then it really should be very problematic for me to um, like castigate, demonize or villainize millions of people based upon their politics. 
that's right. That's a good way, that's a good way to put it. Um, so I'd say the biggest discovery in psychology in the last 50 years is that almost every trait that you can measure about a person is going to be to some degree heritable. Uh, which means that if you look at the clearest demonstration is if you, if you look at identical twins who are separated at birth, it doesn't happen much anymore, but it used to happen. Uh, if you look at identical twins separated at birth, raised in different families, they will tend to be similar on levels of religiosity and politics. Now, what religion is chosen by the parents, but how religious they are um, is, is affected very heavily by their genes. And the similarity of twins reared apart increases over time. Now you'd think that like, oh, as they have different experiences, they would get more different, but actually no. Once they get out of their parents' house and they can choose things for themselves, they tend to choose the same sort of thing. Uh, fraternal twins don't do this. They're not very similar, but identical twins tend to be very similar. And so, um, so if, yeah, if political orientation is something intrinsic and innate, like sexual orientation, um, that is a, uh, that is one ethical reason why we should be at least conscious or think about whether it's legitimate to discriminate people against people. Obviously, you can choose who you associate with, but in terms of hiring or anything else, um, is is you know, might politics have some similarities to the other forms of identity that we're more used to dealing with? Well, you referenced Fox earlier. I, I did appear on Fox <laughs> as a candidate. Uh, one of the things that I, I found is very compelling or telling uh, is that Fox's ratings are higher than um, CNN's and MSNBC's by a very significant margin. Uh, and, and one of the arguments you make in The Righteous Mind is that this moral vocabulary that speaks to conservatives is actually slightly more popular <laughs> than, 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 than the other moral vocabulary. So to all of the progressives, uh, who are listening to this, gnashing your teeth, being like, why the heck like, does it seem like, uh, like the audience on the other side is bigger? It's because of, of um, the, this moral vocabulary. That's right. We can go even deeper on that. It's not just a matter of vocabulary. Um, so there's a really good book out now by, uh, by my friend Joe Henrik. He's a, a professor at Harvard in uh, uh, evolutionary biology, economics, anthropology. He's a really great social scientist. And so the book is called The Weirdest People in the World. And weird stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Um, and the thesis is, the finding is, uh, that people like you and me, people in media, journalism, the academy, um, in, in any almost any area of elite society, uh, have this have this way of thinking, which is very different from the other you know ninety five percent of humanity. So most of humanity thinks that kin ties are very important, and group loyalty is very important, and they're more rooted, uh, and it's the weird people who are the exceptions. And then with a student at the University of Virginia, Thomas Talheim, um, he did all kinds of really cool research on the, how rice farming regions of China and India create a very different morality than wheat farming regions. Uh, so he's been publishing that. He looked to see whether the left-right difference matches on, and sure enough, it does. People on the left in America and in China are more weird in their cognition than are people on the right. And so what that means is that is that people on the left should really see themselves as the exceptions. It doesn't mean it's bad in any way. It just means progressives think like a very small percentage of humanity. And that's why I say in The Righteous Mind, one of my chapters is entitled The Conservative Advantage, because right-wing politicians have a built-in advantage. They can play on more keys, as it were, or they can appeal to more taste buds. 
uh, progressives are always at risk of just thinking everyone's like me, but they're not. People are not mostly like progressives. Yeah, I had a conversation with uh, Anand Girdardas recently where uh, he and I both made the same um, argument that like we just need to talk about some of these things uh, by appealing to different values than we currently are. Um, because if you sit someone down, and I did this hundreds or thousands of times on the trail, where if you sit down a conservative and you say, hey, do you think drug prices are too high? They'll be like, heck yeah. You know, like, do, do you think that someone should have healthcare if they lose their job? Also, heck yeah. You know, it's like, like, the, like if you communicate things in certain ways and people are on board with it. Um, if you were to ask that person, are they for Medicare for all? They might say, heck no, because that's been coded very negatively <laughs> by, by their, um, uh, their favorite journalist or whatnot. Um, so a, a lot of it is about changing terms. Um, you know, when, when I presented universal basic income as the freedom dividend, you know, we did so in part because we found it appealed to uh, different types of voters. Uh, and it appealed to, to liberals and Democrats at the same level. So it's like, oh, well, why not? <laughs> you know, if, 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 you're, if you're going to help it. But I want to caution you here because... Um... What you're doing is you're talking about framing and you're talking about, and a couple of times in our conversation, you've talked about uh, the terms that you use or the you know framing or what words you use. Um, the left was profoundly affected by George Lakoff's book, Don't Think of an Elephant, and by George Lakoff's work in general. And Lakoff is great. I mean, his, his um, uh, Lakoff and Johnson, Metaphors We Live By, is one of the most important books I, I've ever read. Uh, and his, his work on moral politics is fantastic also. But... Um, he used the example of the the death tax as a brilliant framing device. Yes, the, the right estate used. tax turned into the death tax. That's right. So yes, that's a great example. That's very viscerally powerful. And a lot of Democrats seem to have latched onto that example and that book, Don't Think of an Elephant. And they're, uh, they just think about, well, okay, let's get the right frames. If we can get the right frames, our policies are better. So if we can just get the right frames and the right words, it'll be like magic. It'll, you know, it'll go right into their heads and it, like a lock and key. It'll turn and then they'll vote for us. And that's been the idea since 2004. And there was a great book by Matt Bai called The Argument. I think it was around 2006, 2007, where he, he traces the Democrats' efforts to come up with this like master narrative and the frame and to, to try to do this. And uh, by 2006, 2007, they had made almost no progress. And here we are. It was especially clear, I think, with Hillary Clinton's campaign, you know, okay, what is your campaign about? What is, you know, what do, what do Democrats stand for? And you could list a couple of policies, but the point is they didn't make much progress on that. So I'd like to suggest to uh, Democratic uh, politicians, you got to go beyond framing. It's not just about words. Um, you have to show that you actually have some respect for some insights on the other side. You have to listen. Uh, and then you have to uh, talk, talk in ways that that appeal to their things that they really value. And so your example is of, of talking to uh, about healthcare in terms of dynamism in the economy is great because the, you know, the right, the social conservatives are in with the, the libertarians and the pro, the, the pro business side. Um, they hate handouts. They hate welfare. They think people should work and pull themselves up. So if you say, well, if pe people want to work, but often they, you know, they're trapped because of, you know, be, uh, in, a, in a job because of healthcare, they won't take chances. Um, so the more you can say, you know, I hear you, we need a dynamic economy. We, and you know, we want everyone to have a stake in the economy and we want people to love capitalism.
Let's talk about UBI and how to frame that and also human-centered capitalists, because that's where we're going here in the conversation. How do you yeah. sell, how do you sell, promote? How do you, what do you find is effective? Because especially UBI, I would guess is you know, much more acceptable on the left, but the idea of people on the, to people on the right of a handout, everybody gets 12, you know, 12,000 a year, they don't have to do anything. That right on its face is contrary to conservative morality. So tell me how you sell that or what, what appeal has worked. One of the things I talked about a lot on the trail was how the market gets a lot of important things wrong. Uh, and I ask, how much does the market value the work that my wife Evelyn does with our two children every day, one of whom is autistic? And then they say zero. And then I say, well, we all know that's ridiculous that the work she's doing is some of the most important work that anyone can ever do. Uh, and this goes true for every stay-at-home mother, every caregiver, uh, every person who's taking care of a loved one. And I found that many social, social conservatives uh, like that message a lot because they're very pro-family. Uh, they believe in um, people taking care of each other. Uh, and my message was around trying to divorce this market-based economic value from this intrinsic human value. And, and I think there was something um, kind of both communal and, and even sacred about the way I was presenting this intrinsic human value. Um, we found that over time, the appeal of universal basic income. When I started, it was not very high. <laughs> Truly, yeah. it was like in the, I think it was like the high twenties or something along those lines um, nationwide. As we're having this conversation, um, it's above fifty-five percent last I checked, um, and cash relief during the pandemic is something like eighty-five yeah. percent. Yes, including a majority of both uh, Democrats and Republicans. Um, so those were some of the arguments I made that seemed to appeal to people on both sides. Okay. So uh, a couple of times in our conversation, you've made arguments that begin with like utility or or conceptual distinctions, like saying the market misprices certain things. Um, and, you know, uh, but then you got to, uh, you know, the, the family appeal. <clears throat> so I would suggest, I mean, the general principle for, I think, for politics and persuasion is talk to, speak to the elephant first. You know, if the mind is divided to like a rider on an elephant, where the rider is your conscious reasoning, the elephant is is the intuitions and emotions, the other 95% of what's going on in your mind. Uh, if people have a visceral sense that they don't trust you or they don't like you or, or they think your policies are threatening, then no amount of reason or fact or evidence is going to change their mind. I found that on the trail for what it's worth, like a lot of it, uh, it and that's one reason why if you talk to professional um, media consultants or politicos, most of it's about trying to make people like you. It's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. so a lot of like my ads were like, Andrew Yang, uh, patriot, job creator, parent, like all the stuff where frankly, I found it a little bit um, uncomfortable or difficult, but they were like, no, no, if they like you, then anything you're, you're doing, they'll like too. Okay. Well, if it's just, you know, like me, like me, like me, uh, you know, that, so, you know, demagoguery is just speaking to the elephant and not caring about reasons and evidence. Uh, and political consultants often, you know, they be just as well off advising demagogues, uh, you know, but you're an evidence guy, a social <laughs> science guy, you read, you know, you read books, you, you know, you want policies that will work. 
Uh, so, so for you, I mean, you, you basically get it, but I would advise you to be, even go more on that. Um, you know, talk about uh, talking, for example, talking about, uh, you know, the breakdown of the family. I mean, the, this is something that the right yeah. has been right about since the sixties and, you know, uh, yeah. Patrick, you know, uh, Patrick Moynihan, you know, wrote a report on this and, and he's been, you know, and sociologists have finally realized Moynihan was really right. And, uh, you know, strong families are essential. I made this argument on the trail, John. I said, look, we should be subsidizing marriage counseling for anyone who wants it. Uh, and then there, there were folks that, um, you know, said, why? And then I said, well, because the data shows that children who grow up in a two-parent household are more likely to have all sorts of positive outcomes. And, uh, you know, I'm a data guy. So like that, that's a slam dunk. Like if you can keep a family together, it's a win for the next generation. But if you, if you have an audience that is of centrists or moderates and, and, and conservatives, I would urge you to start by acknowledging that, you know, you might even say, you know, um, you know, there, the, there are all these policy de debates, and with the, in the benefit of hindsight, we see that you know each side was right about some things. And you know, modern social science research shows that the you know, conservatives were right to be concerned about the family and the and the decline of family, the rise of divorce. Um, and uh, I think you know, I, you know, even though I'm a, a Democrat or a liberal, I you know, I I, I like good, you know, truth wherever I find it. Or, um, but something to validate that they were right about that, that it is it is the most humane way to care for people in most cases. Um, so start really, you know, um, start with, you know, st talk to the elephant first, uh, uh, acknowledge, uh, uh, acknowledge their concerns, uh, and then you can give the data to back it up. That's what I mean by then you speak to the, the rider second. Uh, I do tend to reverse that a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, right. In this conversation, you've done it a couple of times. Yeah, and that's and that's yes, why. That's yeah, why and, you know, Lakoff, Lakoff was so Lakoff had his book, uh, uh, Moral Politics, I think it was called, and then, um, oh, what's the other one? The Political Brain. Um, what Drew Weston, uh, a couple of years later. So the two of them both made similar arguments that the Democrats tend to speak to the head, they tend to give data, and that's why they have such trouble connecting. So, you know, knowing that, and that's why Bill Clinton like was such it. a genius. I mean, Clinton and Obama both, uh, you know, Clinton in particular, because he was from the South and, and uh, um, but, you know, he was very talented at speaking to the, speaking to the elephant first. So an, another appeal I made on the freedom dividend that you might enjoy, John, is I talk about people as the owners and shareholders of the richest society in the history of the world, said that uh, this, is, this is a dividend on our phenomenal progress of the last number of decades. Our economy is up to $22 trillion. We can easily afford a dividend of $1,000 a month for people. And I, I have to say, folks did often ask me at the time, like, where are we going to get the money? And then I would talk about Amazon trillion dollar company paying zero in taxes, et cetera. But now post pandemic, no one asks where you're going to yeah, get the money because right. now it's pretty clear we could just could have done, done it any yeah, we wanted. That's right. So no, that's good because so, so if you look at the, look at the usual polarities and you want to break them up if you can. And, you know, the left, right polarity for you know more than a hundred years has been labor versus capital. It's on the economy. Um, and the left tends to be uh, anti-capitalist and the far left is always clearly strongly anti-capitalist and uh that means that the the right can always point to people on the left and saying they're socialist they hate capitalism they hate america um and you know they're always they're trying to scare voters with the the boogeyman of socialism or communism and 
when you know when uh, Democrats have come out and said. Um, you know, no, you know, capitalism is great. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's what has made America uh, strong and wealthy and successful. And we invented the modern form of it, et cetera, et cetera, you know, make it part of American identity. Uh, and also free market, you know, the word free market is, uh, is also good. Um, but if you come out and you break up the polarity by saying, no, you know, you know, capitalism is a good thing, but always has, it has this brutal side, creative destruction. It's not just an abstraction, like people's lives are destroyed when industries close down or automation is, you know, as you say, you know, it's a good thing overall, but my God, it's gonna wreak destruction on hardworking people. And so you break up the binary in that way. You, you're pro-capitalist, but you totally understand the, the, the critiques of the left of, of capitalism have real merit. And that's why my policy will, et cetera, et cetera. But you got to resonate with their concerns first and make it clear you're not the boogeyman. You actually agree with them about some basic values. That's one reason we framed it as human-centered capitalism, not talking about framing. But I genuinely believe that this version of capitalism has lost its mind and its soul and is uh, destroying uh, tens of millions of lives. And that, that's more true uh, now than it even was when I was running. Uh, so to me, the goal should be to try and harness capitalism to benefit the average family in Iowa or Ohio or New York City or wherever, uh, because right now our capitalist system is geared towards uh, stock market prices and capital efficiency yeah, it's and trying to make yeah. the, the world's first uh, trillionaire or whatever the heck you know Jeff's going to become yeah. at some point <laughs> if, if, yeah. if things keep up. Like, like that, that's the way that the winner take all economy uh, is not trying to help us. And, and one of the things I was saying was, look, the capitalist economy does not care about a cashier or a truck driver that loses their job because a computer can do the job better. Right. And pretending that our system is somehow going to account for that human being is stupid. <laughs> and we right. should. And so we, we need better measurements. We need better goals. We need better uh, data and benchmarks. Uh, we need uh, a president who is going to say, look, like our goal should be to get deaths of despair down, not up, get life expectancy up, not down, like get the average cost of college uh, down to a point where the average middle-class family might have a chance at um, actually sending their kid without borrowing hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, it's like, like these should be the goals of the economy. Environmental sustainability uh, would, would be a big one. And I truly believe that this has to be the future. And one thing I'm excited about, John, is that uh, 42% of the folks who were supporting me in the presidential weren't sure they're going to support the nominee, which means um, we drew in a lot of folks who were from all over the map ideologically. I'd like a lot of fans who were uh, libertarians or Trump voters or politically disengaged or whatever it was. And, and I'm convinced that a lot of it was because we have this political language uh, on each side and then I created this kind of new, strange language of facts and figures and economic trends. And like, and it wasn't even deliberate on my part. I just communicated the way I communicate. <laughs> and it turns out that there was like this untapped um, audience uh, where they, they looked up and said, I don't like politics ordinarily, but I like what that guy is saying. Uh, and one of the points that Ezra makes in his book is that, and you made it also, is that Right now, politics is about um, what team you're on or what my support for this policy says about me. Uh, and 
if you're politically disengaged, you actually respond to a, um, a message based upon what it can do for you as a family. And people heard my $1,000 a month and said, that is actually going to do more for me than these other things. Yeah. But tell me, were your supporters, were they more educated than others or were they more uh, the, the kind of people who would benefit, who really needed the $1,000 a month? My supporters were very diverse, where we had a lot of highly educated support, um, but we had a lot of support from folks who would benefit greatly uh, from that kind of policy. And when we looked at the top five professions of the people who donated to my campaign, uh, I think they were, and I didn't get, I'm not going to get the order right, um, but the top five were uh, teacher, computer programmer, driver, uh, retail, and warehouse fulfillment, oh, wow. I think. Yeah. So it, it, it really yeah. ran the gamut. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Uh, you know, because we often think that politics is about voting for your self-interest. And for some people, it is. Um, and if, especially people who are hurting, if, if they get the sense that you, you could really help them and people like them. Um, but also American politics at, at the presidential level is more like a religion where we're, we want to be inspired. Uh, um, uh, and so it, uh, it makes sense that your campaign in particular would attract a very diverse group. Um, the, the extent that you were the most data-driven, the most you know geeky, I, I suppose. I mean, you've got your math cap right behind you uh, in, the, in, the, in the video here. I mean, I'll own being the geekiest candidate, sure. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, so people who care a lot about uh, uh, data and evidence didn't yeah d didn't really have uh, data. yeah you were the, you were the guy to go to for 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 that. I was uh, the math guy. I was the math guy. Tell me a bit more about it. Like, what would you actually do? Um, to, to, to change America, American capitalism over to human-centered? It's not that hard. Uh, so the main thing you have to do is actually shift the measurements of the economy at the Bureau of Economic Analysis via the Department of Commerce. So right now, the Department of Commerce uh, reports on various measurements that we use. And the three main ones that our media makes use of are GDP, headline unemployment, and stock market prices. And each of those data points is misleading at best uh, and completely uh, destructive at worst. So GDP goes up if you have a natural disaster because you have to invest in trying to rebuild that town. <laughs> if you have software that can drive trucks, it's going to be great for GDP. It's going to be very, very bad for lots of former drivers. Uh, and even the inventor of GDP said this is a terrible measurement for national well-being and we should never use it as that. And he said that almost... 90 years ago, and here we are riding it off a cliff. Uh, so that that's not great. Uh, headline unemployment obscures so much. Uh, it obscures people who are out of the workforce. Uh, labor force participation is down to a multi-decade low. Even pre-pandemic, it was around 63%, which is comparable to El Salvador as an international reference. Uh, millions of people have dropped out of the workforce. It doesn't include folks who are underemployed. If you're underemployed, counts as a job. It, it, if you're a gig worker doing multiple jobs, no benefits, counts as a job. Uh, so if you flip over the headline unemployment, it's almost intentionally designed to be punitive because if you drop out of the workforce, you no longer exist. <laughs> it's kind of framing this world that, uh, that you know, someone dreamed up decades ago. 
Um, so there are better measurements. Labor force on, uh, participation would be a big one um, using a different rate like U6 as opposed to U3, which is the, the different labels for. U6 includes people who are discouraged, who are detached from the workforce, who are underemployed. Um, and it's typically something like twice as high um, oh, wow. as the, the rate that we, we hear about. And the third thing is stock market prices is totally obvious at this point to anyone right. who's looking up where uh, the bottom 80% of Americans own 8% of all stock market wealth. The bottom 48% own zero. So if you're paying attention to stock market wealth, you're essentially just reflecting the fortunes of the top 20% of Americans. So, so imagine a world where the same breathless zeal with which we report those numbers actually applied to mental health, childhood success rates, clean air and clean water, uh, health-adjusted life expectancy, infant mortality, uh, affordability of a college education. Like, like you actually had those numbers out there and then people would seize upon them and comment on them with the same frequency and emotion that they do, like the stock market's ups and downs. Uh, and that's actually not that hard to pull off. All you need to do is report th that data and then have your government and media institutions hold them up and as soon as you do that, then it exposes a lot. Like if you start saying, hey, our life expectancies declined three of the last four years because suicides and drug overdoses have both overtaken vehicle deaths for the first time in American history, it's very hard to put a, a positive spin on that. Like you, you, you put that out there and say, well, we are actually falling apart. Uh, or some of the social measurements that you referred to earlier around the disintegration of the American family and what that's actually meant um, in terms of outcomes and the fact that 40% of American children are now born to an unmarried mother and what that means. Like if you have numbers like that out there, then uh, again, like right now we, we've been blinded uh, by a few massive misleading measurements and then told that things are great. Um, and I believe the pandemic may have a positive effect in exposing that stuff as nonsense really like you know because it's very hard to imagine that things are going great and the stock market last i checked is actually uh doing just fine uh rfk robert kennedy had a, a beautiful uh beautiful speech about how gdp measures everything except that which makes life worth living um, it doesn't measure the joy of our children's play uh the yeah. the, the value of our work like think, the, right. yeah, the value, he's, the value he's, of uh, your wife taking care of the kids yeah it doesn't include yes. any of that so yeah, he's say, saying this in the '60s, and here we are again, almost 60, like 60 years later, um, riding it off a cliff. Um, so that, to me, was the path forward. Uh, was like a unifying vision of what politics should be striving for. And one of the reasons why I think this fact-based governance is so important is right now we're devolving into these uh, spin universes where I can argue for whatever results I want. And, you know, it's like, as long as I say it really loud, then like, you know, people have to listen to it respect. So if you have a certain set of facts that um, you're centered on, and then if you're a Republican, you can be trying to gear policies towards slightly different goals or even significantly different goals. Like, you know, you could be trying to drive uh, small business formation or military readiness or government efficiency or, uh, family cohesion or whatever it is, um, as long as you have some goals you can point to and say, that's what we're shooting for, um, then, and then if the other side wins their election, they'll be like, okay, we're going to shoot for, um, for different goals, uh, you know, like uh, that, that are more around caring and, and fairness, um, then I, I think that would be okay. 
Uh, the problem right now is that um, facts are losing uh, and and spin is winning. I, I came across the one of the, just the greatest insight on why that is happening uh, recently. I'd, I'd like to just read a, read a few sentences to you. Um, so Jonathan Rausch uh, at Brookings, uh, just a really brilliant social analyst. Uh, he was uh, important in the drive for gay marriage and and um, uh, he he has a book coming out called The Constitution of Knowledge. And that's a bit of a play on words, like the constitution as like the makeup of knowledge, and then also the constitution, like the US constitution, like what kind of structure do you need to get knowledge and truth? And in uh, in chapter eight, the book will come out in a few months, but I he, he sent me an advanced copy of it. Oh, look at this, we're gonna promote another book, I love it. If you think that you're part of the reality-based community, you need this book. Now, of course, if you think that's you, you probably are wrong on certain points, but um, we are seeing a dramatic, dramatic uh, decline in the anchoring of political views to morality. Um, and so I just wanna read you this, he has this amazing quote um, about how social media came to play such a role here. Because <clears throat> he's focused on institutions uh, he says that's the key is getting institu institutions that help us, uh, you know, check falsehood. And, and so he says, um, uh, uh, the reality-based network's institutional nodes, its filtering and pumping stations are what give the system its positive epistemic valence. That is its ability to separate truth from falsehood. And he says, the techno-utopians of the information revolution assumed that knowledge would spontaneously emerge from unmediated interactions across a sprawling peer-to-peer -peer network with predictably disappointing results. Without the places where professionals like experts and editors and peer reviewers organize conversations and compare propositions and assess competence and provide accountability, everywhere from scientific journals to Wikipedia pages, there is no marketplace of ideas. There are only individuals running around making noise. And that's what's happened to us. As social media became really ubiquitous and much more addictive after about 2009, 2010, um, in the 2010s, social media played a much bigger role in our information ecosystem and the mainline media had to accommodate to it and, and uh, uh, really changed as well. Um, we don't have uh, you know, editors playing a role of what's true and what's false. Trump comes across things, you know, I, I listened to the, the transcript of his, his call with uh, Raffenberg, the, the guy in Georgia. And he says, you know, he keeps saying, yeah, well, you know, but, uh, you know, they, they, they burned up all these ballots. So that's what the root, that's, that's what I've heard. Like, yeah, sure. That's what you've heard, you know, because you can hear anything. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, technology, and I know you're you're strong on this too. That, but you know, that uh, if you want a, a you know a good, vibrant uh, democracy, you need to be based in facts and truth and evidence about what works. And social media is going to be a big under or the internet in general, but social media in particular is going to be a big part of getting that right. One thing I love about you, John, is that you're not just a thinker, you're a doer. Like when you put these ideas out, first, you know, you do TED Talks and you do things where you're actually trying to broadcast the ideas to a general audience. You're not writing for like a small insular group. Uh, but then you've actually founded a number of organizations uh, to try and solve some of these problems. Uh, now, I agree with you completely that we've taken this uh, polarized society and then we've 
accelerated and exacerbated it uh, through media and social media, um, making it so that you're rewarded for uh, inflammatory content, you're rewarded for attacks on others, you're rewarded for uh, being sensationalist. So, so, so there, there are all these problems that are now compounding on each other. Uh, and, you know, I, I ran for president saying, okay, look, like there's this fundamental economic uh, transformation that's happening that we are not meaningfully addressing and it's destroying us and it's going to drive us insane, um, which I believe. And then, and then, yeah, then you have like uh, media and, and social media dynamics on top of it. Um, I, I sense that you and I agree on a lot of this, um, but we're also problem solvers and doers, uh, you know, and we're also parents. We're looking up being like, okay, uh, my society is not uh, bearing that well, like it's coming apart, not coming together. Um, so, so how can people support your work aside from, um, from, from buying some of your books, following you and you're, you're fun where like you use social media, but you're very judicious about it. (laughs) You're not not like some of us. It would be quite ironic if you were like a very, very, um, heavy user. Uh, but uh, talk about the work you're doing and how people can both keep up with you and support you because oh, you're sure. doing incredible work. Okay, sure. Uh, well, I've, I've co-founded four organizations to address different as- aspects of, of these institutional failures that we have in America. Uh, so one is called ethicalsystems.org. Uh, it's something I founded with a bunch of other researchers uh, uh, in, in business schools. And our goal is to help companies improve business ethics. And increasingly, it's it's become to be much more of a, a stakeholder focus rather than shareholder primacy. That, that's the big change that America needs to make. And that's just another way of saying what you said about financialization. And Love it. Stakeholder stakeholder models instead of just a blind shareholder value maximization, which yep. is going to destroy us. Ethical yep. systems. That's number yep. one. So ethicalsystems.org. Uh, and then um, because, as I said before, I noted that that my field of social psychology was becoming sort of politically purified. Everybody was on the left. Um, and I gave a talk on that, and I met a bunch of other professors who were studying the problem, and we founded a site called heterodoxacademy.org. So heterodox is the opposite of orthodox. Do you want an orthodox academy where people only say what is you know, the orthodox truth? Or do you want a heterodox academy in which professors and students are, you know, can ex- are exposed to all kinds of different viewpoints? Um, so if there are any faculty, any professors uh, 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 listening, we have uh, uh, 5,000 members, almost all our professors. Uh, please go to heterodoxacademy.org. Or if you, want to, if you are concerned about the state of the universities, please uh, you know, donate money or get on our mailing list. That's two. Um, out of Heterodox Academy, we created a thing called Open Mind to, to teach, the, you know, to expose students to the best ideas of left, right, and libertarian. And that ter- it turns out the market for that is not just at universities, it's actually mostly in businesses. Businesses are being torn apart now by, by left, right politics, especially in, in, in tech, media, journalism, the arts. There are a lot of industries now that are really having huge internal struggles over politics. And so if you go to openmindplatform.org, uh, it's a free resource. Um, you, get, you get a link, you send it out to your people, you'll all get a common vocabulary and understanding of basic principles and moral psychology. So that's the third, openmindplatform.org. And the fourth uh, is uh, uh, 
coming out in part from my, my book, The Coddling of the American Mind with Greg Lukianoff, um, we're big fans of Lenore Skenazy, uh, who uh, wrote the book Free Range Kids. She let her son ride the subway alone when he was nine and people freaked out, you know, but, but she's been really the apostle of, you know what, kids always used to do this. Kids always used to go outside <laughs> without an adult guard. Um, they still do in some parts of the world. Yeah, that's right. And there are some rural areas in, of America where they do, but, uh, but almost but in most parts of America, we suddenly got the idea, even though crime has been plummeting, you know, since the 90s, it's gotten safer and safer. This is the safest time to let your kids out. But we just freak out in part from social media and other, but a lot of other trends at any rate. A lot, so, of, a lot of reasons. Yeah. I, as a parent, I see so much programming for kids warning them about strangers. Like it's just, yeah. you know, stranger danger. Don't that's like, right. don't, don't take the thing. Don't, don't, don't. Yeah, it's like, that's it's, right. it's very, and, very right. yeah. and do you know how many people? Do you know how many case, documented cases there are of poisoned Halloween candy? Zero. I'm going to say zero. zero. <laughs> yeah, there are no known cases. And, you know, cases of child abduction are extremely rare. It's almost always the non-custodial parent. Anyway, the point is, uh, we freak out, we, we keep our kids supervised, and that means they don't get to grow and learn. And this might be one of the reasons why rates of anxiety and depression are skyrocketing in Gen Z, kids born after 1995. So, um, so Lenore Skenazy and I and uh, Peter Gray and, and uh, uh, Daniel Shookman founded an organization called Let Grow. So if you go to letgrow.org, if you have kids who are eighth grade or below, please go to letgrow.org. And we've got lots of tips for you and your family, uh, how to foster your kids uh, growing independence. Um, you know, I live here in Greenwich Village. Uh, we let our kids walk to school uh, when they were in fourth grade. Um, which you know, when I was a kid, you'd be walking to school much earlier than that. But yeah, uh, but it was a big fourth grade's pretty aggressive now in now twenty twenty one. No, I had obviously done, John. Yeah, and I, we had to give them a little c a card, you know, saying that they have permission from their parents because if they get stopped, you know, child protective services could pay us a visit. Anyway, if you're concerned about these issues, uh, please go to letgrow.org, and we we're certainly in need of uh, of financial support as well. Letgrow.org, such incredible organizations. Uh, I'm going to just ask because I'm curious. So um, your book, Coddling of the American Mind, came out in 2018, uh, which I thought was a phenomenal contribution. Uh, but I know the way your mind works. Like you you are uh, a thinker and academic. I can't help but think that you've got some other ideas uh, germinating that are going to eventually end up making it into the world. Uh, it might be around technology. It might be. I know we have mutual friends who are very concerned about uh, the impact of social media. Um, but like, what what is uh, what what is attracting you right now, or what are you working on? My next book is going to be called Three Stories About Capitalism: The Moral Psychology of Economic Life." Because um, when I got to Stern, wow. I was at, I was at the University of Virginia for most of my career, and then I came to NYU Stern in 2011, just for one year originally. Uh, and as soon as I got here, Occupy Wall Street broke out. So you have this really anti-capitalist narrative. There's a very clear story, which goes back thousands of years, that the rich are rich because they took it from the poor. That's that's what the first story of capitalism, it's exploitation. But I was at the business school here, where it's all about creating value and you know using business to solve social problems, and it's all very positive. Um, and that's, that's the story number two, is that capitalism is liberation. Capitalism creates this explosive growth that lifts everybody, not evenly, but it does lift everybody. That's the second story. Uh, and so um, 
you know, and, and in general, the left likes the first story and the right likes the second story. And so I began to see the righteous mind stuff playing out in economists and economic arguments that people would pick their facts oh, to support yeah. That's one story or sure. the other. Um, yeah. And uh, so I, I, I proposed writing a, a book on this. I got a contract in 2014. The book was due in 2017. Uh, but I got kind of side, <laughs> I got kind of sidetracked because the, you know, because the Collie in the American Mind that was an Atlantic article in 2015, but it really took off and the problem got worse. So I, 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 I wrote that book and put this one off. I'm so glad I put off the capitalism book because my God, everything has changed in the last year, and now suddenly. Yeah. There's much more receptivity to human-centered capitalism, uh, patient capitalism, inclusive capitalism. You know, so I I don't know what the third story is yet. I, I'm I'm I've sort of staked. It's I, human-centered capitalism, John. Yeah, I'm going to well, make a case for it. Basically, I'm yes. Send you some stuff. Okay, great, perfect. Yeah, I will interview you for the book. Um, but that's what I'm working on next because you know what I've really come to see. Like, you know, I I, I moved to, the, to a business school when I was about 47 years old. And you know, I'm I'm a pretty well-educated American, which meant I knew nothing about capitalism, uh, and um, uh, and I even kind of like looked down on you know business schools and capitalism. There's, there's a kind of a snobbery in universities where, you know, most people think that you know, it, it, uh, business is too, too applied; it's not intellectual. Um, but I've discovered that that was really not true, and I've really had a great time here at NYU Stern. Um, it, my department is called the Business and Society Program. And we have one program looking at business and human rights, trying to help companies improve the supply chain, which has massive effects on the welfare of people all over the world. Uh, and then we have uh, uh, Tansi Whalen used to run the Rainforest Alliance. She runs the uh, uh, Center for Sustainable Business. Uh, and if, you know, and if, if businesses improve, uh, you know, if improve their sustainability, we all benefit. Uh, and in most cases, they have a higher return on investment as well. Anyway, so that's what I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a professor in a business school and I'm doing all this politics stuff, all this childhood stuff. Uh, but I'm also doing a lot of, a lot of stuff on, on business and capitalism. Well, would certainly love to be helpful. Um, my, my evolution has sort of gone in the opposite direction, John, where I ran right, a private started company. Business, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then I started a nonprofit to help uh, support entrepreneurs. And then I became convinced that the biggest problems that are coming down the pike are non market based problems, where uh, if you have an opportunity to make money by getting groceries to people in their homes or like uh, delivering a service over an app, then there's capital for you. There's a marketplace for it. Um, but a, a lot of the biggest problems we're facing now don't have market-based solutions. And so I, I got driven towards uh, politics that way, uh, where I'm convinced that our economic system needs to evolve very, very quickly and significantly, and that there's not a realistic way to do that that, that does not involve uh massive wholesale political change um that's why i did something as rash as run for president um, but it's fun like you you and i are arriving at a lot of the same conclusions from different angles that's right we're basically you know pro-capitalism but recognizing its flaws and um uh and i think you know one thing that we really learned in this pandemic year is not that government is the answer but that when government works with business amazing things happen uh, and that um, you know a lot of that market won't solve many of our biggest problems. So you know again you you, you got to uh, you know break the binary. In fact, there's a wonderful book coming out um, um, called High Conflict uh, by Amanda Ripley, 
And um, it's all about how people get into these not, these conflicts that make them blind and it's really unproductive. And she talks about complicating the narrative. The way you get people to think is not by showing them, well, here's what one side says and here's what the other side says. What do you think? Because people tend to take one or the other. It's rather to say, you know, well, here's one group and they've got a variety of opinions and some of them think this and some of them think that. And, you know, and to, to make it clear, there's no easy answer. Uh, but the and the answer might be distributed. So I think that's that's what your candidacy did. Is you know it, it, you weren't like from one camp or the other, but you're looking for answers from multiple places. So if we're going to change, if we're going to change capitalism to be more ef effective, I mean the the shorthand I use is is that uh, the third story is going to be about capitalism that has high dynamism and decency. You got to have both. And the right I'll take is, it. Dynamism and decency. Yeah, because the right has always stood for dynamism, even at the cost of decency. They don't they don't care as much about the, the safety net. And the left always goes for decency and they're willing to sacrifice dynamism uh, and have lower, you know, lower uh, uh, you know, lower economic growth and and and, um, and uh, dynamism and decency are are sometimes a opposed to each other. Um, but a lot of places, uh, a lot of businesses have found ways to uh, avoid that. In like Scandinavia, um, the fact they have such a good, they, they have they have probably the best combination of dynamism and decency, because they're very, very decent societies. But they also have, uh, their, uh, you know, Sweden in particular, they're pretty dynamic economically. And so... Um, well, what we've done right now is we've, we've given all of the incentives to dynamism and then said, but, but try and be decent. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, like we, have, we have to try and yeah. make it so that you can actually be rewarded for being decent uh, uh, as a business uh, or business leader. Well, John, thank you so much. Uh, I learned so much from you. I feel privileged to have had this time with you. Uh, and hopefully you will continue to just keep on making me and everyone else smarter. Um, I'm just going to continue to uh, ping you, learn from you. Anything you do, I want to see and read and support. Oh, my pleasure, Andrew. I really enjoyed talking with you. 